0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Now, this is part two of a two-part series on the murder of Lacey Peterson. If you haven't, please go back and listen to part one, which was episode 92, as we cover the lives of Lacey and her husband, Scott, as well as her disappearance, the discovery of his affair, and the investigation into the missing person slash possible murder. We'll pick up where we left off, after a short recap and a covering of the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is Productions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast, a thank you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In part one, we talked about Lacey and Scott Peterson and their unborn son Connor. On Christmas Eve in 2002, Scott reported Lacey missing after he spent the day fishing in his small boat near San Francisco Bay. Investigators were suspicious of Scott from the start because of his cavalier attitude about his missing wife and unborn son, and they soon learned he had been having an affair for about a month before Lacey disappeared. Lacey's family initially supported Scott, but upon learning about the affair, they realized he was most likely responsible for their missing daughter and unborn grandchild. Roughly two and a half months after she went missing, the case became a homicide, and it would take about a month after that until the worst suspicions were confirmed. On April 13th, the body of a late-stage human fetus washed up on shore just three miles from the Berkeley Marina. The following day, the partial remains of a woman washed up in the same area, and many believed the two bodies were that of Lacey and Connor. Investigators feared that once Scott found out that bodies had been found near where he had been fishing, he would flee from Mexico. They obtained a court order to place a tracking device on his vehicle so he could be detained if he tried to leave the country. After the bodies were identified as Lacey and Connor, investigators moved into arrest Scott. And this is, I think, the first time we've talked about these tracking devices. Uh, They are something that law enforcement use, and and they would have been pretty somewhat rudimentary back in 2002, 2003. I mean, now you can track somebody with something as small as an has an Apple AirTag. But back then these were GPS tracking devices. They often had to be wired into the vehicle a lot of times law enforcement would find a reason to tow the vehicle. Uh, sometimes going as far as to make it look as if the vehicle was stolen so they would have time to install these devices and then return it to the the person, but uh, it, these did require court order, it did require a judge to sign off that there was enough proof that a crime uh, had occurred in which the person needed to be tracked in order for these devices to be installed. But because of this device being installed, they were able to quickly locate Scott in San Diego at a golf course near his mother's residence, which was also close to the border with Mexico. And when he was taken into custody, he was found to have changed his appearance to include dyeing his hair and growing facial hair. The vehicle he was driving was registered in his mother's name and was full of survival gear to include water purifiers, fishing gear, camping supplies, and food. He was found to be in possession of $15,000 in cash, his brother's ID card, and multiple cell phones. And this is something I think we'll talk about a little bit more during the trial. He's going to have quote-unquote reasons for having all of this stuff, and his family is going to testify to these reasons, but in reality, it's one of those... If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Uh, he's changed his appearance. He's got his brother's ID card. And at the time, just like we covered in the McStay case, you only needed a driver's license to get into, into Mexico. Now you needed a passport to get back into the United States. But if Scott's plan was to go into Mexico to go into hiding, uh, make it more difficult for authorities to locate him, all he would need is his brother's driver's license. And then he's got a decent amount of cash to last for a while in Mexico. He's got all this gear to basically live off the land for a while to keep him away from cities where he could potentially be recognized. He's changed his appearance. His vehicle's registered in his mother's name, so when it runs through license plate readers, it's not going to come back to him. So basically, as far as anybody else can tell, he's, he's all set up and ready to go on the run. And again, we'll talk about in trial, he'll claim that all this stuff can be explained away, but everybody at the time, especially when he was arrested, believed he was just hours from, from running to Mexico if, if he needed to. An investigator's charged Scott with two counts of capital murder, and he pled not guilty to the charges on April 21st and was ordered to be held without bail. On May 2nd, Mark Garagos, a high-profile celebrity lawyer, was hired by Scott's family to serve as his defense counsel. And this guy had been the defense lawyer for, like, Winona Ryder and Robert Downey Jr. So this is, this is a guy that comes with some significant firepower in terms of, of being a defense lawyer. And six months later, a judge rules that there's enough probable cause for the case to go to trial and orders that Scott stands trial in 2004 for the crimes. And I don't know if we've talked about this at all, but it's not that police just arrest somebody and then automatically there's a trial. There's going to be a lot of motions from the defense after the arrest to try to toss out evidence. And if enough evidence can be tossed out, a judge can look at a case and based on his or her experience, the judge can decide if there's not enough evidence to support a trial. The entire case can be thrown back to the prosecutors saying basically get more evidence before we go to trial. A, I don't want to waste everybody's time with a trial when we don't think there's enough evidence for a conviction and B, if you take this to trial and he's found to be not guilty, then nobody's going to be held accountable for th- these crimes uh, at least if if you truly believe Scott's a suspect. So it's not, again, as if somebody's arrested and a few months later they're facing a trial automatically. There's there's going to be a process and it's going to be, as I said, roughly six months after Scott is arrested. This is going to go before a judge and a judge is going to rule, yes, there's enough evidence for a trial and that trial is going to occur in 2004. In December of 2003, Sharon, who's Lacey's mother, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Scott to ensure that even if the criminal trial failed to achieve justice for Lacey and Connor, a civil trial could. And this is something that we saw most famously with the O.J. Simpson case, in that what most people would see is a complete miscarriage of justice. In the criminal uh, trial, O.J. was acquitted, but then he was brought to a civil court for a wrongful death lawsuit in which Uh, The families of the deceased in that case were proven through a civil court of law to have been wronged by OJ's actions, and as a result, he was ordered by the judge to pay a large amount of money for being responsible for the death. So, this is only roughly eight, nine years removed from the OJ Simpson trial at this point, and that uh, occurred in California, and everybody in the nation would have still remembered it at this point. So, the family likely got together and said, hey look, just in case somehow he escapes any criminal charges during this investigation, this trial, let's make sure that we can hold him accountable. And there was a $250,000 life insurance policy that covered Lacey, and that's not nearly as much as some of the other life insurance policies we've talked about. A lot of the times when somebody is killed just specifically for the life insurance, Uh, whether it be in the case of the Murdaugh's or the the Black Widow out of Colorado. We're talking about multi-million dollars worth of policies that are in play during those cases. But this $250,000, I'm sure Sharon, Lacey's mother, was concerned that if this was somehow awarded to Scott, it would potentially could be used towards either his defense. Basically, the money could be spent before they'd ever even see it because in most wrongful death lawsuits, in most civil cases, unless you're taking a either incredibly wealthy person or a very successful business or an insurance company to court, you're not likely going to see, even if you're awarded a large amount of money, you're not likely going to see that large amount of money just because it doesn't exist. You, You could sue somebody for Seven million dollars, and if that person only has two dollars to their name, good luck getting all of that money, even if you're awarded it. So, in in this case, again, it's not always about the money, and in this case, it maybe is a little bit about that two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but it's not always about the money. It's about making sure that there's some level of justice. And the following month, in January of 2004, the trial was moved from Modesto to San Mateo County, 90 miles away, after the defense stated that Scott couldn't get a fair trial in Modesto because of the publicity. And this is going to be something that's going to be brought up after the trial. The defense is going to claim that the move from Modesto to San Mateo was not far enough in order to escape the publicity. And I think the judges are going to look at this both during the appeal and then when they made the decision in the first place. And they knew they had to acquiesce a certain amount to a change of venue. They couldn't just say, you know, a change of venue is not going to matter in this case, so we're not going to do it. Lacey was from the Modesto area, Uh, you know, had grown up there and gone to school there, had a lot of people there would have known her. So moving the the trial 90 miles away does give a, a, a small amount of fairness to the trial, but in all reality, everybody in the country knew about this case at this time it had been all over the news all over the 24-hour news cycle so it's not as if moving this another 10 miles 100 miles 200 miles away they could have moved this thing to los angeles or seattle washington and the people in those places would have still known about this case would have still had preconceived notions about scott's guilt just based off what had been shown in the media. So there's just certain cases where getting a quote-unquote fair trial is going to be difficult no matter where the trial is held. But again, the judge can't just say that and say, hey, it doesn't matter where this is going to be held. Scott's not going to get a fair trial. So they are going to move this trial at least 90 miles away, just get it out of Modesto itself. It's going to change the jury pool so that it's less likely that somebody would have known or had contact with Lacey at some point in their life. And as we're going to find out, that really doesn't matter because there's a ton of issues with the jury as well. But on June 1st, 2004, the trial for justice for Lacey Peterson began with prosecutors presenting their version of events. They claimed that Scott killed Lacey and Connor so he could live a life free from responsibility and he could pursue a relationship with Amber Fry and use money from Lacey's life insurance as a bonus. They claim that Scott killed Lacey at the house on the morning of Christmas and then drove her body to the marina and dumped it into the ocean with concrete weights attached to her limbs. The defense argued that Scott had a laid back personality and he was not a murderer and would prove that Connor was born days after Lacey went missing and during a time when Scott could not have killed Lacey or Connor. During the trial, the prosecution had the challenge of proving murder with little in the way of direct evidence. Their entire case was built on circumstantial evidence that, when put all together, they hoped the jury would see that only Scott could have been responsible for Lacey's murder. They began by explaining various physical evidence found during the search of Scott's home and place of work. At the Peterson home, they found evidence on his computer that he had searched for information on the currents in San Francisco Bay. And this is something that was really harped upon in both the media and the trial. Now, I did read another article stating that. The totality of his searches about currents in San Francisco Bay was about 30 seconds. And I don't know how they would know that it was that short of a time frame unless it was that they had a record of him actually visiting some type of a website that showed the currents in San Francisco Bay and then he somehow closed out that website after 30 seconds. It, people could do a lot of things during that 30 seconds they could print out a, a thing. And, and again, maybe that would have shown up if he did, maybe it wouldn't. You could take a picture of it with your cell phone. There's, there's a bunch of different things you could do that would change the amount of time you had to study those currents. And, and sometimes maybe 30 seconds would be all it would take. 30 seconds is a decent amount of time if you're looking for a one specific thing. If you're looking for where to dump a body so that the currents pull it out into the ocean, it wouldn't, shouldn't take more than 30 seconds to look at a map with arrows on it pointing the di- different currents and pick your spot where you're going to dump a body. So again, while both sides would try to sell this as something that benefits them with the prosecution saying, look, he's, he's looking for areas on currents in the San Francisco Bay and the, de- the defense saying, yeah, he looked it up, but he was only there for 30 seconds. Again, the jury has to weigh all of this stuff, and and again, it's going to come down to not just one thing, not just him looking at currents in the bay, and whether it was for 30 seconds or 30 minutes or whatever it might be, it's going to be everything put together. Uh, Investigators also found a woman's hair on a tool in Scott's boat that was consistent with Lacey's hair from her hairbrush. and This was important because, according to the prosecution, Lacey had never stepped foot, ridden in and and might not have even seen the boat that Scott bought and the defense of course is gonna say oh well she was at his place of work where the boat was so she would have seen it or there's a chance her hair would have gotten in the boat at that point just showing up to your husband's place of work where he has bought this boat there's no proof I don't think they found any evidence from any friends of Lacey's that she was aware of this boat Uh, from what I understood scott's work consisted of some type of a warehouse uh, like a storage facility for this fertilizer and stuff and so it's it's again there's a lot of people who look at all of this evidence in two ways one they say that every single piece of evidence points towards scott's guilt and other people say because it's circumstantial, every piece of evidence can be explained away. The currents on in, in the bay on his computer, he was going to go fishing. He'd want to know where the currents are. Uh, Lacey's hair in the boat. Well, she that's because she knew her husband bought a boat. When she visited him at his workplace, maybe she got in the boat there. But again, it's it's at the end of the day, we have to add everything up. So as we say each piece of evidence, yes, there are explanations for it. But I think we're going to see at the end that those explanations would put all together fall short. And the boat contained one homemade concrete anchor, but there was an abundant evidence that Scott had made five concrete anchors from a bag of 90 pounds of concrete he had purchased. He would later claim he only made one anchor and used the rest to repair his driveway, but investigators found signs that five anchors had rested on Scott's boat trailer for a period of time, due to four additional circular void patterns matching the one located in his boat. It was alleged that Scott poured the concrete powder into the molds while they were on the trailer, and the missing four anchors were used to tie down Lacey's body, which is why it took so long for it to surface and wash ashore. And so lots can be made of these concrete anchors. And the best way to describe it, because I heard it once in a podcast, and I was trying to wrap my head around what they were talking about. So from the sounds of it... If you're gonna make a homemade concrete anchor, and and again, most people buy a boat. It would probably be less expensive and less work just to go buy a concrete anchor. Um, I love my mom to death, but there was a, a time not too long ago that my I think it was my sister and my mom and my nephew were out fishing and they asked my mom to drop the anchor over the side so they could do some fishing. And my mom dropped the anchor when it wasn't attached to anything. So that anchor is sitting in the bottom of our, our lake somewhere. And so we just to the local marina and bought another boat anchor. And for a boat this size, I think it was about a 14 foot little fishing boat, an anchor isn't that expensive. So it seems like a lot of work to make your own concrete anchor and if he truly, if there's evidence, he truly only made one anchor for the boat. I guess as a cost-saving measure, whatever. You had extra concrete left over from repairing your driveway. Sure, like you went on online, found a way to make a concrete anchor. I could believe you, but the way it was described is on the on the boat trailer itself. And a lot of boats, the the tongue and the front part of the boat is kind of an area of the trailer where you can set stuff and it sounds like somewhere on that boat which i'm assuming is going to be the 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 tongue because the boat takes up most of the back of the trailer if you're going to make concrete anchors i'm picturing something like a, a gallon bucket of ice cream and you're going to pour your concrete powder in there you're going to add your water you're going to stir it up with a power drill stirring attachment. It's eventually gonna solidify in there. Before it solidifies you're gonna put in some type of a hook device into it so that you can tie a rope around to it and, and voila you have a concrete anchor. Well it's not that there was just one spot where it looks like the powder had been poured into the mold and the water added and all that kind of stuff. It looked like there was these five circular void patterns where there was powder around the circle where this mold would have been. So while one circular void would have made sense for the one concrete anchor they found, five of these void patterns would indicate that f- five concrete anchors are were made, and four of them are unaccounted for and that's where investigators believe that he had made these five concrete anchors, and he might not have even intended to use the fifth one as an actual anchor for the boat. It may have been he made five in case one of them didn't take or didn't form properly or whatever it might be but the idea is the human body has four limbs in which to tie stuff to if you tie four of these concrete anchors to each of the limbs that's going to be a pretty good way to to keep a body on the bottom for a while this is going to get a little grotesque a little morbid here but when you put somebody's body into water unless it's very very cold water there is still going to be decomposition and there's going to be predation by aquatic carnivores, omnivores, whatever, that are going to take advantage of this body on the, the ocean floor. Well, eventually there's going to be weak points and those weak points are where these, these these limbs are attached to a human body. And eventually over time, those the body is going to... Decompose slash be predated on long enough that these anchors they might still hold on the limbs, but the torso will, will be released, and that's often what will wash up on shore for bodies that have been tied down with with four point anchors because it the there's nothing keeping the the main part of the body down. And even even if you do, like I said, eventually there's weak points. The body just decomposes or is predated on long enough for the the bo- parts of the body to start breaking off unless it's somehow contained if you put it into say um, uh, some type of a bag uh, that that's going to stay secure and everything's going to stay together and then you weight down that bag then you might have a situation where you're not going to have the body surface but gases the body is lighter than water eventually parts are going to surface and wash ashore which is what happened here that usually happens after a period of time, if the body's been weighted down, they're missing four concrete weights that they believe were made on Scott's boat trailer. So again, it's not just one thing, it's everything when you add it together. Now the defense would argue that getting rid of a body at a busy marina, a terrible idea, and therefore Scott would not have attempted it. But marina employees were brought in that stated that only three people paid to launch boats between December 24th and December 26th, as the holiday is very slow around the marina. And again, this is not San Diego. This is not Southern California. Uh, maybe down there, I don't know. I've never spent a holiday down there, but maybe there's family traditions of going out on the boat. It's a nice day. It's 60, 70, 80 degrees. You, you might go out for a boat ride. This is Northern California, where temperatures tend to be lower. You're talking about the the heart of winter in North America, where likely seeing some of the coldest temperatures of the year i just don't imagine that it's as popular of a thing to go fishing or boating over the holidays in northern california so if he is picking a place to try to get rid of this body the timing of it would actually be beneficial to him to do on this day because most people are going to be spending time with family or doing that last-minute Christmas shopping, and the last thing they're going to do is be driving to the marina to go fishing or boating. The prosecution showed that Scott could have put Lacey's body into the toolbox of his truck, which would have kept it out of view. From there, he could have transferred it to the boat and then dumped Lacey at sea. And they went to great lengths to do this. They actually found a woman who was, I think she was like eight months pregnant... She worked for the prosecution's office. She was roughly the same height and weight as Lacey. So they took a whole bunch of pictures of her. She could fit in the toolbox, this one of the big toolboxes Scott had in the back of his truck, and basically it would have been a makeshift transportation for her. For him to be able to do so. I contend it's possible he could have hit her body under a tarp in the boat while towing it. There was definitely room they showed again because then other people said, okay, well even if he gets her to the marina, how does he get when he launches the boat, how does he launch the boat with without people seeing this dead body in there? And again, I would I would contend it's possible that he hit it under a tarp because they had showed pictures of this woman laying down between the benches in the boat. And there's plenty of room for her to would to lay there and you wouldn't see from the side you wouldn't be able to see that there's this body so when you're pulling a a trailer yes it could be like a semi that drives by you that could see down in your boat or maybe a higher truck but again if you've got this body under a tarp and you've just got these concrete anchors on top of a tarp nobody really questions things like tarps or, or blankets or anything in the back of a boat most people just assume that you're you know that that's that's something that you you're hauling stuff and you just want it protected from the elements or you've stored stuff in your boat and you want to protect it from the elements so if, if it's not going to be a visible human body there's he could have hauled her with completely with the boat and this is uh, the toolbox would have been more for transferring her from the house to his work where he then again it was this big warehouse-type building, he could have then, with being Christmas Eve, being a holiday that not a lot of people work, he likely could have transferred her body from the truck to the boat at his work, then driven the truck and the boat to the marina with with her body in the boat. The prosecution also told the jury that in the weeks after Lacey went missing, Scott changed the nursery into a storage room, he sold Lacey's car, and he added adult entertainment channels to his TV package. Indications he did not expect his wife to return home at any point. And again, this is this goes more along with behaviors that didn't match. If, if I was a married guy and my wife, an unborn child, went missing and I had nothing to do with it and I'm holding out every ounce of hope that they're going to come back, I'm not changing that nursery. I'm leaving it as is. At least for a while. I mean, maybe eventually, a, a year, two years down the road, I might change that. But at least holding out hope, if nothing else, because the last thing I would want is that. I mean, I would obviously want my wife to come, wife and unborn child to come back. But if they did come back, I'd hate to say, oh, yeah, you know, a week after you guys left, I changed that room to a storage room. I sold your vehicle, and by the way, we're now paying for adult entertainment on our, our TV package because I didn't think you were coming back. I mean, these are these are things that are kind of the last thing on somebody's mind when their wife and child is missing, getting rid of that, the, the spouse's vehicle, changing stuff around in the house. That's usually something somebody does after the grieving process is over, after they know their significant other is not coming back and maybe they're moving on to that next chapter in life, but but doing it within weeks and before the bodies are discovered, again, definitely behavior that people found did not match what they would have expected. And the defense team tried to introduce an expert witness to testify that Connor had been born on or around December 27th, three days after Lacey was reported missing and when Scott was surrounded by police and family. Under cross-examination, the expert witness's testimony fell apart, when they admitted they didn't know the exact date of conception and hadn't been given enough information to make the calculations they were claiming and i didn't really understand the science behind this in the first place it, it was something about when they did the autopsy on on connor's body they determined he was x amount of weeks along and then they went back and and according to what i read in the sources it was that the this expert witness went to a friend of Lacey's and used the first time she took a pregnancy test to determine the the potential date of conception. And that's why it fell apart is because we're talking about them going missing on the 27th and a pregnancy test to determine the exact date of conception, I mean, likely is going to be w- within a range of I'm just guessing here somewhere in three to seven days of accuracy from the date of conception if, if you're going off a woman's ovulation uh, cycle and when conception may have occurred. And so when you're talking about a, a window of error as large as, I'm just guessing here, three to seven days, and you're saying that the baby had to have been born around December 27th, I don't know how you don't assume that that the baby wasn't born or something didn't happen to that child within three to seven days of the date you're giving so anywhere from December 20th to uh, early January uh, based on that so and that's really I think what the prosecution went after this expert witness for is saying you, you you can't put an exact date on that you cannot put a December 27th date on this because you don't have an actual 100% verified date of conception that would tell you that the child is, is this far along in development. And it was something about when, when this expert witness was questioned in a, a whole bunch of times, they actually said on the stand like, that they needed to be cut some slack because they weren't given all the information. And that's the last thing you want it from to hear an expert witness say if you're on the jury or if, you're, if it's your, your expert witness is to have them request for a lawyer to cut them some slack. And the prosecution furthered Scott's motives by showing financial records that indicated Scott was roughly $23,000 behind in credit card payments and over 70% of his income was accounted for in just mortgage and insurance on the house. The defense argued that Lacey was set to inherit almost $140,000 in jewelry in 2005 which could have been sold to cover any debts. The prosecution also argued that Scott's company was losing money, but the defense countered with the fact it was a multi million dollar corporation and could handle a small loss like the one experienced while Scott was starting up the company. So, and this goes back to motive. Prosecution, of course, is going to try to establish every possible motive. They're going to try to paint the picture that Scott is this extremely desperate guy that needs to kill his wife and to sell it to the jury. I mean, ultimately, you have this affair, you have some of the stuff that he said. But this is icing on the cake for the jury. If you can show that not only does he benefit in terms of being able to live this carefree lifestyle and continue a relationship with his with his, with his mistress, he's also going to benefit by getting out from under debt. And it wasn't a great argument by the prosecution. There was something about Scott had an additional like twenty thousand dollars in. Potential credit card line of credit he could work, but at the same time, it definitely didn't paint the picture that they were super financially stable and they were putting money away into savings every every week. They were living beyond paycheck to paycheck, so there was some level of desperation. And again, this inheritance of $140,000 in jewelry inheritance, they can a they can. Go away you can be written out of a will or the probate court can have issues with with this inheritance and b there's no proof that you're going to get what you want out of this money and jewelry it can be worth that much but somebody would have to be willing to pay you retail price for each item of jewelry in this collection in order for you to get back this much money so if you're going to either pawn them that's 20 to 30 percent of the value if you're going to sell them in auction you might get 50 to 60 percent of the value it's going to be pretty tough to actually recoup all of that money so again it's it's one of the the finances is one area where i feel this case isn't the strongest but at the same time again it just adds every little piece adds to this this case the previous affairs that occurred while scott was attending his senior year of college were introduced by the defense in a somewhat risky move, they were hoping to show the jury that Scott had been unfaithful to Lacey before and in at least one case Lacey had found out about it and Scott didn't kill her. But the jury likely saw this as an apples to oranges comparison as those relationships were flings with college students and Lacey wasn't living with him or pregnant. The pressures he was facing with the impending birth of his child, the finances, and a future with Lacey that would involve Connor change the situation to one where it wouldn't be as easy to leave lacy and start fresh the only way for him to be with amber and have no responsibilities was to kill lacy and connor and and again the defense came out and said scott's not a likable guy you're gonna find out he's had affairs you're gonna find out that he's doesn't act appropriately at all times uh he's done he's shown some behaviors during the investigation that people didn't like him for and so in the trial they're going to say yeah what do we have to lose here let's show he's had two affairs before and he didn't kill Lacey. it's not as if every time he gets married to somebody and he wants to be with somebody else he kills the person he's with and then starts a relationship with the person he's had the affair with and again i don't think the jury bought it because cheating on your girlfriend fiance wife well that's terrible to do when you have there's no kids in the picture when you're in college when you're young i say young and dumb but that's just young and immoral but when stuff like that happens it's yeah it's not great but at the same time it's not going to change your entire outlook on life it's not going to change your future if you have an affair and let's say Lacey had left him after she found out about one of those affairs you know it wasn't going to change his life significantly and in fact he probably would go back to the carefree life that he had he probably pursue his professional golfing but in this case again when once a child is potentially in the picture that changes things you're going to be with that person to some degree as a co-parent or financially responsible to a child for at least the next 18 years so just moving on from Lacey was not going to do it for Scott, and that's what the prosecution was trying to show, and I don't think the defense was able to really sell um, by them bringing up these previous affairs. And the defense argued that the concrete anchor theory wasn't proven, and if so, why weren't the anchors found during searches of the area Scott claimed to be fishing? And so the prosecution had to bring in an expert diver to testify that the sediment at the ocean bottom could hide concrete anchors and they had once lost a piece of equipment and it took four days of diving to find it and they knew exactly where they were this item was lost at and that's really important because when you're searching bodies of water they're going off scott's word for where he was that day it's not as if they had gps this was not a again a fancy fishing boat with some type of a really fancy GPS device that they could get in and see the metadata and and follow his direct path where the boat went that day. And if the boat stopped, they could pinpoint some GPS locations and send a dive team down. They did do some side scan sonar of the the ocean floor there, but we're talking about concrete anchors, again, the size of maybe a a gallon ice cream bucket. We're not talking about large objects that are going to be returning a large hit. And if they've buried themselves in the sediment, there's really nothing for the sonar to ping off of. And a diver could swim right over the top of it, and not even realize it was there. So all the defense is basically gonna say, if there were concrete anchors, you sh- should have found them. Prosecution is gonna say, we looked, we couldn't find them. And even when you know exactly where something is and not just in a general area of the ocean, it's, it's very difficult to find. And the defense also tried to downplay the changes in Scott's appearance during his arrest and the various items that made him appear like he was going on the run. They claimed he changed his appearance to avoid the media. His mother testified she let him put his vehicle in her name because investigators kept seizing his vehicles. She also said that she had made a bank error when moving money around and the was money that was taken out to fix the error. His brother testified he let scott use his id because he was a san diego resident and they got discounts at the golf course they were going to golf at and all the survival gear in the car was just because scott liked to camp and fish so again the defense i guess the the worst thing the defense is facing in this entire case is optics everything that scott has done including his affair with amber fry including how he told some people that he was golfing that day, told the cops he was fishing, how he acted afterwards, how he acted with Amber on the phone lying about that he was in Paris, how he all this stuff that was in his vehicle when he was arrested. It's all optics. It's really bad optics for Scott. So the defense is going to try to do everything they can to paint the picture that Scott's just this idiotic Guy who struggles with infidelity yes he cheated on his wife he'd done that a few times he made some stupid choices in his life he's not the most emotional guy but none of that makes him a killer there's no evidence that he actually killed Lacey it's all just this circumstantial stuff and you can't prove that he killed her beyond a reasonable doubt and when the trial ended there were people on both sides of the aisle regarding Scott's guilt Many saw a series of events and circumstantial evidence that could only point to Scott committing the murder for personal gain and a free life. Others saw the lack of physical evidence and questionable motives as beyond a reasonable doubt of his guilt and therefore he should be acquitted. Problems with the jury were abundant during the trial. As is the case in all trials, jurors are supposed to limit their information about the case to what they hear in the courtroom. On June 23rd, the judge had a two-hour session with the jurors after one juror was caught on camera talking to Lacey's brother during the trial. That juror was dismissed after he admitted to talking to the victim's brother and having conversations with his girlfriend about news reports from the trial. After over five months of trial testimony, the decision went to the jury, but just a few days into deliberations, a juror was dismissed from the case after she admitted to conducting her own research. This meant it was no longer possible to determine if her personal verdict would be based on what she heard in court or what she found on the internet. She was replaced with an alternate named Rochelle Nice, which is a name that we brought up later in this episode. The next day, the jury foreman requested dismissal from the jury during the deliberations, as it was reported that he was an attorney and had not been getting along with the other jurors, and they wanted him to be removed from the jury. On November 12th, the jury and its two alternate members, concluded the deliberations, and returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Lacey and second-degree murder in the death of Connor. The difference in charge levels was actually suggested by the judge and was likely due to some people struggling to assign full protection to a fetus like that of a living human. In other words, if someone is okay with abortion because they agree the woman's right to choose, they may struggle to convict someone for killing an unborn child. But if they're okay with convicting them of a lesser charge because the fetus was planned to be birthed by the mother, then the juror has an easier time reaching a verdict. So this is always the case when it comes to trials involving murders of pregnant women is you have no doubt the murder charges against the mother, but you have people that struggle to decide how to properly charge the person for the death of the fetus because At the time, the US still had Roe v. Wade, which said that a fetus is not a a living human. So you can't assign the same civil rights and the same right to life to the fetus, which is why abortion was and is legal. Because if if you said that a fetus is a human, then it would be really hard to work around how abortion could be legal because you're legalizing the killing of, of a human being at that point so it's been a struggle in these cases where there's an unborn child because as long as abortion is legal it's difficult to assign a, a criminal act to the murder of that child via the murder of the mother and in a lot of cases it, it has changed since this was 2004 it has changed uh, a lot of, at the federal level. There's a separate charge now if you kill an unborn child by killing the mother. They, they've made some changes to make it a little bit easier for courts to see uh, how to charge these out and and specific statutes that cover these situations. But at the time, it was difficult. And they were worried that the, the jury would basically could find Scott guilty for the first degree murder and the death of Lacey, but then decide to not convict him of anything with connor because if, if they were faced with it had to be a first degree murder of connor and the statute for first degree murder requires that to be a human being that they would look to the constitution and say this doesn't fit but second degree murder did so the judge basically told them hey if, if you're not comfortable assigning full rights to connor as an unborn child then you can charge him or convict him under second degree murder so again I'm not trying to get political here with abortion or anything along those lines it just that's the best way i can describe why it wasn't two counts of first degree murder it was a a, a count of first degree murder and second degree murder and ultimately the difference would be a moot point as the first degree capital murder charge carried a possible death sentence so the sentence for the lesser charge really didn't matter Uh, it was more about getting justice for connor On November 30th, the jury once again met to discuss the sentencing phase of the trial and returned on December 13th when the jury unanimously elected to have Scott face the death penalty. The judge took the jury's decision into consideration and carefully examined the entire trial, the jury deliberations, and then on March 16th he rendered his sentence in accordance with the jury and Scott was sentenced to death by lethal injection. The civil case against Scott had been dropped by Lacey's mother after the guilty conviction but the judge ordered Scott to pay $10,000 to Lacey's family to cover the funeral expenses for Lacey and Connor. The judge told Scott he believed Scott was guilty and he committed an act that was cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous. Due to the immense media coverage and worldwide interest in the case, the jurors were sought after for interviews about their thoughts on the trial and why they ultimately found Scott guilty. Several jurors admitted that despite the lack of physical evidence linking Scott to the crime, His behaviors and demeanor throughout the investigation was very telling. The jury also found the recorded phone calls between Amber and Scott to be especially revealing in regards to his assertion that his wife was gone and he was moving on with a life with Amber. This case is not really about the smoking gun that investigators and prosecutors always want to find. This is one of those cases where the totality of circumstances comes into account. It's that jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces fit just right together until a clear picture of what happened appears. And this is what is referred to as Occam's razor. The most obvious uh, solution is usually the, the correct one. So when you look at this through Occam's razor, what person had access to Lacey, motive to kill Lacey, was in the area, admittingly that day where Lacey's body was found, acted inappropriately after the death of Lacey I mean everything when you look at it there's there's really nothing that that comes together to come to Scott's defense now I, I did see several websites during my research that were dedicated to his defense saying that he was framed or or the evidence didn't show that he actually committed this crime he and and to that I just say if he was framed that would have to be the best frame job in the history of frame jobs if you wait until scott leaves after he told everybody he was going golfing mind you and you wait until scott leaves and then somehow know that he is fishing that day in berkeley marina you kill his wife and unborn child bring their bodies to the ocean to the area where he was fishing and drop their bodies in the ocean and it just so happens that Scott made five anchors and there's four of them are missing, but you, you didn't, you didn't know that or you somehow knew that and and still you carried out the crime this way. And then that doesn't even account for Scott having this affair and Scott telling his mistress in advance that his wife was dead and him buying the boat around the time that he decided he needed, he needed to, have his wife be dead in order for this story i mean it just it's one of those things where if you try to explain away all of the little circumstantial pieces that all come together to make this case it doesn't make sense the simplest solution is usually the right one in this case it's he had access to her he had access to the boat act, he admitted to going fishing that day her body and connor's body are found in the area that he went fishing his behavior afterwards didn't line up with somebody who was hoping that their wife and unborn child would come home. He's making comments about not wanting to have kids, not wanting to have responsibilities. There's there's financial gain for him. I mean, just every time you count off all these pieces of evidence, they all come together and say the only person that could be guilty of this crime is Scott Peterson. And then and then not only that, if you, now you have to look at who else could have been responsible for all this stuff who else would have like i said either you had to have the best frame job in the world in, in order to frame him for this but who else stands to benefit who else stands to gain if Lacey and connor are dead the only thing you could say is that if somehow Lacey had been kidnapped sexually assaulted and killed but then you have to go back to how does her body end up in the same body of water 90 miles away from where she went missing of all the places and we talked about the McStay family and how bodies in the deserts of California are popping up at a ridiculous rate how do you choose to drive 90 miles to the exact marina to the exact body of water that Scott decided to drive that day and you put a body in the water that same day that then surfaces four months later? it just no other suspect makes sense. You've ruled out all other possibilities and therefore it has to be Scott. Jurors found him to be dishonest with almost everybody in his life and made his defense team's assertions unbelievable as well. And you're not supposed to assign as a jury. You're not supposed to say, okay, well, this guy isn't likable, so he's guilty, but it's very difficult when you realize this guy is a master manipulator. Everybody that he meets, he's this amazing, the best guy in the world. He's he's in it for for everybody else who wants and then his ex-girlfriends have admitted as soon as things get a little stale or boring he just becomes this fleet and utter load he doesn't want to do anything he's got no motivation left and, and then so yes he's going to present as this absolutely terrible person and that is going to make the defense team's case even harder and the judge also ruled that Scott was not eligible to receive Lacey's $250,000 life insurance payment because under California law, a convicted criminal cannot profit from his or her crime. So life insurance was instead awarded to Lacey's mother. Scott was sent to death row at San Quentin State Prison on October 21, 2005, to await the results of his many appeals. The first appeal filed was an automatic one that occurs after a death sentence and did not occur until July 5th of 2012. So a lot of people wonder why people sit on death row for so long without being executed well in this case there's an automatic appeal that occurs after a death penalty sentence and this one was almost seven years from the time he was sent to prison until the first appeal was was written and served so that's seven years and it's not as if the appeal has even been looked at or considered at this point and the following day, Scott's defense team filed an additional 423-page appeal asserting that mistakes have been made during the trial to include unfair media coverage and incorrect evidentiary rulings. And then two and a half years later, the state filed its response to the appeals, laying out the reasons why the trial had been fair and appropriately decided by the judge. The appeal went before the California Supreme Court in June of 2020. The Supreme Court was willing to listen to arguments about jury behavior and selection that did seem to plague the case and so despite there being several issues brought up in this these appeals the supreme court does not have to or the court of appeals does not have to address every item in the appeal it's not all or nothing deal they can select different parts of the appeal that they feel might have uh, some warrant to have arguments over discussions over however you want to see it and so in this case Despite there being you know, 423 pages of appeals about unfair media coverage and incorrect evidentiary rulings it's the Supreme Court's gonna look at all that and say no all of that's not something that we're concerned about in this case but we are concerned about jury behavior. Uh, the defense argued that the trial should have been moved even further away because half of the jury candidates had to be excused as they admitted they had already decided Scott was guilty based off the media coverage. And there were other arguments about the jurors being allowed to get into Scott's boat on dry land. And improperly excusing possible jurors was also an issue that was heard. And so, again, the, the Supreme Court's going to look at this more from a jury standpoint. And the the whole thing about half the jury candidates being excused because they already decided Scott was guilty. Again, you could have moved this case to Boston or New York, the other side of the country, and you probably would have run into half the people had already decided Scott was guilty, so again the Supreme Court's going to look at that stuff and say there's there's nothing we can do about the media coverage. It is what it is. Those jurors were excused because there was as they were supposed to be. It's supposed to be an open-minded person, and these people had already decided Scott was guilty, so there's nothing to look at there. This whole issue of jurors being allowed to get into Scott's boat on dry land. There's a lot of issue with this boat being so small that people wondered if somebody could toss somebody overboard with four concrete anchors without capsizing the boat because it doesn't have a very wide base and so if you have Scott who was 200 and some pounds and Lacey was about 150 pounds and these concrete anchors you've got probably roughly 400 pounds of weight all on one side of the boat going over the edge of the boat there's a good chance it was capsized and so for some reason when the jurors wanted to look at the boat a couple wanted to get in to see how steady the boat was well it was on dry land so of course it's going to seem steady it's going to be in a trailer and it's not going to move and they the defense the thought that that was unfair that it, you know had it been in water and had they had a 150 pound dummy with weights on it and then had somebody demonstrate how boat would have capsized and the jurors were in there at the time then Of course, that probably would have been an appeal by the the prosecution, but on August 24th, 2020, the California Supreme Court rendered its opinion after a 7 to nothing vote in favor of overturning Scott's death sentence. And this is because they found that jurors opposed to the death sentence had immediately been dismissed and had not been asked if they could set aside their personal beliefs about the death penalty in order to honor their oath as a jury. So this was really something that it was more of a formality basically had they just asked these jurors that checked a box basically saying i oppose the death penalty had they just asked those jurors hey we see that you oppose the death penalty but if you're sworn in under under oath stating that you were going to see this not by your personal beliefs but just by the by the way justice pres- presented in the courtroom if it comes to the point where the person's found guilty and if they're going to face the death penalty can you set aside your anti-death penalty stance and, and, can, and sentence this person to death. And now, had they asked that question and the juror still said, no, absolutely, I will never, ever, ever send somebody to death, then that person could have been dismissed and there would have been no issue with it. But because they didn't ask that question, because they just went purely off the questionnaire, the Supreme Court found it wasn't fair to Scott that those jurors were immediately dismissed and so they overturned just the death sentence part of it. But because the issue wasn't a dis- about a decision to convict, but instead a decision about the ultimate penalty, Scott's overall conviction was not overturned. Instead of facing death, Scott would face life in prison without parole. The prosecutors announced they would retry the death penalty sentence part of the trial only, but reversed that decision in 2021. Scott was officially sentenced to life in prison without parole on December 8th, 2021. He was also sentenced to serve 15 years concurrent to his life sentence without parole for the second degree murder of Connor. So again, he's got life without the possibility of parole. So these 15 years, doesn't matter if they're served consecutively or concurrent because he's never gonna see parole. So it's not as if these 15 years are going to extend a parole period or anything like that if if it was served consecutively. And Scott was taken off death roll in October of 2022 and moved to Mule Creek State Prison. In December of 2022, allegations that the replacement juror, Rochelle Nice, lied on her jury application were made by Scott's defense team. When asked about a past involving domestic abuse, Nice had answered she had not experienced domestic abuse. However, it was learned after the trial that Rochelle had sought a restraining order in 2000 due to abuse she sustained while pregnant. Scott's Lawyers argued her past tainted her view of Scott and was not subjected to a fair trial. While reviewing the latest appeal, a judge ruled that Rochelle didn't so much as lie as she didn't answer questions on the questionnaire very well and the error was not one that likely affected the outcome of the trial. And Scott's lawyers can appeal the judge's decision and so this case may once again go before the California Supreme Court. But for now, Scott is behind bars where he's been since his arrest of April of 2003. That is it for the case of Lacey and Connor Peterson. So again, a case i wanted to, to cover just because it's one of those cases where the beginning of the CSI effect, everybody wanted there to be the slam dunk. They wanted there to be some form of evidence, direct physical evidence that linked him to the crime. And we're gonna find, this is, is probably one of the premier court cases that show you're not always gonna have that direct evidence and even when you do, when it's between a spouse just like that hair in the boat it's not always going to indicate that that person's automatically guilty or that they're innocent had this been a complete stranger that scott had just met the day before and there'd be no reason for it ever be on her boat and then they find a hair of her in the boat there's some smoking gun direct evidence that that woman was in scott's boat and then her body shows up in the water but just like the defense argued here they're married she knew about the boat she showed up to see the boat once got in the boat that's how her hair got in there it's not there's no direct evidence that she was in that boat against her will uh, or while she was dead and being transported to be dumped in the ocean but again it's not just one thing it's not just a single hair in the boat it's it's the the concrete anchors it's the behavior it's the telling people he's going to go golfing and then he went fishing it's the uh, hiding of the purse in the house it's 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 all of the the stuff added together that makes this case so but that's it guys thank you for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true blue Crime productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue Crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue Crime that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye